What does a healthy church look like? When we talk about wanting our church to reform or our church to improve, and we, as Christians, we want to go to a good church. We want to go to a, a healthy church. We want to go to a biblical church. But what exactly does that look like? It's hard to define that. It's hard to, uh, to know what we ought to be doing to make steps toward that if we don't have some kind of picture of what it ought to look like. We need to know what we're shooting at. We need to know what we're working toward. So what is a healthy church? In other words, it's interesting, you know, if you meet people in Roswell who are Christians and you find out that they're Christians, you find out that they go to church. You might ask them, what church do they go to? They say, I go here. And if you were to ask them, well, why do you go there? Right? We, unlike the first century churches, unlike the churches of Galatia, we actually have options. Why do you go to church where you go to church? And, and you'll hear a whole variety of reasons, any, ranging anywhere from things like, I don't have a car, and this is the closest place, and I have to walk, so it's the closest church to me. Or you might hear about the great children's uh, ministries that they offer. You might hear about the worship team and how great the worship is or how good the preaching is or just that your friend invited you and you want to go with the people. You know, whatever it might be, what is it that we're looking for in a church? What should our hearts be glad about when we examine a church? Well, as is normally the case with one single sermon, we're not going to cover that answer that question exhaustively today, but the Apostle Paul is going to give us some very important things to look at. If you would please turn to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. We are beginning the end of our series in Galatians. This is the final chapter of the book, and so we are embarking on the final chapter. And if you would... Read with me verses 1 through 6. Please follow along, for these are the very words of God. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Well, as the Apostle Paul often does in his letters, as he begins sort of the last, what we, we, he didn't write the chapters in, we write the chapters and verse divisions in. But as the Apostle Paul begins the end of his letters, he will oftentimes give these final words of exhortation. And uh, they will many times just look like lists of things to do, uh, you know, reminders of holiness, reminders for the church. And a lot of times they're somewhat disconnected. They don't necessarily flow from thought to th thought. Uh, flow from the preceding context. They're just sort of concluding remarks. It's very common in the Apostle Paul. And I think we have something similar here, although I do think that this is flowing more from the context uh, than his usual concluding remarks are. But what Paul has just done in, in Galatians 6 is he's followed up from last week's message where he 
taught the people that what matters ultimately is not being living, be, living and being enslaved to the law, but living by the Spirit and being moved by the Spirit. The Spirit is our Lord. The law is not our Lord. And so we need to live by the Spirit. We need to walk by the Spirit. And so what he does is he just sort of begins to show us what that looks like. What's going to change in the life of the Galatian churches if they start walking with the Spirit? If they start living by the Spirit, how are things going to change? Paul has changed their doctrine up to this point. Paul has refuted this false gospel. He's refuted this false error. So he's been very much focused on their doctrine at this point. But now he wants to show them what a healthy church looks like. Well, maybe a better phrase would say, what a spiritual church looks like. A church that is filled with the Spirit, that is led by the Spirit. What does that look like? And I think what we're going to find in this text are five healthy marks of a, of a church. Five marks of a healthy church. Five marks of a spiritual church. And again, I remind you that these are not the only things. But this is what Paul gives us in Galatians 6. And so it is important for us today. This is what it looks like to be part of a healthy church. Healthy churches will have this, these qualities to them. And the first one is accountability. Healthy churches have an element of accountability to them. Look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Your English translations likely read the word brothers, but in the Greek this is a gender-neutral word, so this is brothers and sisters. It's really a, probably a more accurate translation of that. He's addressing everyone. Brothers and sisters, all Christians, hearing these words. If anyone, any Christian, if any of the brothers and sisters in the church, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. So there is this understanding that one of the marks of a healthy church is that your business is absolutely my business. Your life is absolutely our business. You see, in the vast majority of institutions and things in our culture today that you can join and become a member of, there is this clear-cut thing that I am here to receive a service and you should not really be interested in the rest of my life. Like, I go to a gym, I'm here, I will pay you money to work out at your gym, but what I do at home is none of my gym membership's business. And that's true. That's why we see the churches really shouldn't be thought of as a membership in the same way we think of gym memberships. Because once you join a local church, your life is absolutely our business. If you are caught in a transgression, if you are caught up in sin, caught up in a sinful lifestyle, a healthy church does not ignore that. A healthy church does not look the other way. And, and importantly, a healthy church notices we know each other well enough to notice you're living in a sinful lifestyle. Healthy churches are able to notice when the members are caught up in transgression and spirit-led Christians, he says, you who are spiritual, those who have the spirit, should seek to restore them, to bring them back to the narrow path. You see, Christians are supposed to have a level of accountability. We help one another to walk in holiness. We help each other to walk the way the Lord has called us to walk, to walk according to the Spirit. One pastor put it this way, the community of faith is what forms and reforms the Christian. 
Believers are formed by the ongoing instruction of the word and fellowship of believers in the church. We are reformed by brothers and sisters who hold one another accountable through loving correction, reproof, and rebuke. Such accountability is effective only in a community where a common faith gives birth to mutual love. Christians are called to hold one another accountable to restore each other when we have gone off the path and we are caught up in transgression, when we are caught in sin and in error. But notice though, Paul doesn't just tell us what we should do. He doesn't just say healthy churches do this. He also says spirit-led churches, he tells us how to do it. He doesn't end with you who are spiritual should restore him. But he says he qualifies that process. You who are spiritual should restore him, what? In a spirit of gentleness. You see, being led by the spirit doesn't just mean that we will restore and rebuke and reprove. But it means that we will show this person that we love them by how we do such a thing. You see, it's easy when you're being rebuked by someone or reproved or corrected or helped, sometimes it's hard to know where their motives are. Do you actually want to help me? Are you actually concerned for me? Or are you just concerned about some external formal obedience? Are you just concerned about your reputation? Are you just concerned about whatever it might be? What we do as Christians when we restore people is we restore them in such a way that they know they're ultimately doing this because they love me. They're doing this because they care for me. We show them that we are not just authoritarians who want to make sure no one gives us a bad rap. The goal is not merely behavioral modification, but restoration. And the best way to restore someone is to do so with a spirit of gentleness, of grace, of patience. The spirit will dictate how we hold one another accountable. And this is really important because we talk a lot, especially by doing the pastoral epistles and in the book of Galatians, this issue of authority and church discipline has come up a lot. And it's really easy when we think of the word accountability to associate a cold, lifeless, harsh, authoritarian attitude to that word. Right? My church holds me accountable. Well, what do you think of when you, when so, if someone were to say that, you would think of like slave drivers. You know, my church whips me into shape. But Paul doesn't assume that accountability only fits with a kind of cold, harsh authoritarianism. But Paul thinks accountability can be done in a spirit of gentleness and love and grace. So healthy churches don't just hold one another accountable. But healthy churches in love, gently, with meekness, we help restore people back to the faith. However, this actually can be a dangerous process. This sounds really good so far, right? Like, yeah, I want, I want to hold others accountable. I want them to help me. And I want all of us to be gracious and loving and patient when we do it. Yeah, that sounds great. But Paul tells us, though, that there is actually a danger here. He says at the end of verse 1, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Now what does this mean? I think that 
At first, the more natural reading on the surface seems to be that Paul thinks that whatever sin someone is caught up in, when you go to help them with that, you're going to get caught up in that sin too. Uh, And I think that might be part of it, but I think given its overall context, that's not quite what he's saying. But sometimes that is true, right? If someone is living in a a sinful lifestyle and you're regularly spending time to help them, it's possible to get caught up in that, right? Um, Just as as a side note, it was funny when I was in college doing college ministry, it was amazing how many college students try to justify going to parties because, you know, they need the salt and the light there, don't they? Right? Who's going to preach the gospel to those partiers? Is that all they do is party? <laughs> it's literally, you can't ever just take them out to coffee and preach the gospel to them? You can't just talk to them after class? No, you have to go to the party. And why do we know that's insane? Because I know if you're going to the party to preach the gospel to people, even if that's your true intention, you're probably going to end up partying. So I, I think there is a general truth in that. Right? So don't get caught up in the sin you're trying to rebuke someone of. But I actually don't think that's what Paul means. And, and we'll see why more when we work through the verses and get to this idea of examining ourselves in humility. But what I think Paul is warning us of is that when you play the role of the reprover, when you play the role of the rebuker, you have a dangerous temptation now to become prideful. Because, I mean, what's going on? You're right, they're wrong. And you're the one pulling them out of the mire. You're the one pulling them out of the ditch. You're the one helping them and restoring them. And it can become very, very easy to think too highly of yourself when you do that. And if you do that often enough, you suddenly think that I'm not the one in this church who needs help. I'm the one who gives help. Everyone in this church will likely at some point in time be called to restore somebody else. But may you never forget that you are likely going to need restoration at some point in time during this church as well. You are not better than the people you're helping. Because there will probably come a day when you need their help. So you need to watch yourself, check your motives, before we just declare ourselves, I'm the church accountability person. I'm the church accountability officer. If someone is in sin, send them my way. I'll get them straightened out. No. We are all accountability officers and we are all in need of checking. So watch yourself. So you need to be careful. You need to examine your motives. But a spirit-led Christian will care about the lifestyles and the transgressions that their fellow church members are caught up in. So the first mark here, if you will, of a spiritual church or of a healthy church is that we have a level of accountability. We are holding one another accountable in love with gentleness. But that leads us to our next mark, and they're very related, but I think there's still an aspect that's different here. And the second mark is church, healthy churches, spiritual churches, should have a level of helpfulness. There should be a spirit of helpfulness to a church. We are interested in helping one another, sacrificially laying down our lives for the betterment of our brothers and sisters around us. Look at what he says in verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. He gives us this awesome commandment to bear one another's burdens. Now, this certainly includes what he just said in verse 1. I think that's where the train of thought is going. So when you help someone, when you restore someone from a lifestyle of being caught up in a transgression, you have sort of helped them bear that burden. 
In that case, sin is their burden, and you have helped them bear that. You have helped them alleviate that. But I think certainly Paul doesn't just have that narrow application in mind. He says, in the same way that we are interested in helping each other with our sin burdens, we need to be interested in alleviating all of our burdens. Everyone knows that to live the human life can be described as a process of burden. I don't want to be too dramatic, but we are essentially in a process of moving from one burden to the next. This is why you'll often, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big cliche, but you'll hear people say something like, you know, you know, pastors will be told when you preach, keep sufferers in mind, because everyone in the church right now is either in suffering or about to go through it. Right? You're either in it or it's on your horizon. But we all know that there's, there's hardship in our future. You don't know what it is, but we all know you're not going to have an easy life from this moment till you die. Our burdens take different sides, different forms a lot of times, but the fact of the matter is, is every human being on the face of the earth is burdened. We're burdened by sin. We're burdened by emotional stress and trauma. We're burdened by material needs. We live lives of burden. And the beauty of the local church is that when we come together, again, unlike a gym membership, your burdens are mine. My burdens are yours. The, 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 the Greek, the literal Greek, Paul uses a metaphor of carrying a heavy bag. Everyone, everyone in this room has weights that they can't carry themselves. And God has graciously put us in a communion of saints to help carry this weight. We are called to help one another. We alleviate all of our burdens, our emotional pains, our sins, our material needs. We help one another. By the way, there are many hymns, great hymns that bring this out. Blessed be the tie that binds us reads, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Before our Father's throne we pour our ardent prayers. Our fears, our hopes, our aims are one. Our comforts and our cares. We share our mutual woes. Our mutual burdens we bear. And often for each other flows a sympathizing tear. Another hymn, help somebody today. Look all around you, find someone in need. Help somebody today. Though it be little, a neighborly deed, help somebody today. Many are waiting a kind, loving word. Help somebody today. You have a message, oh let it be heard. Help somebody today. Many have burdens too heavy to bear. Help somebody today. Grief is the portion of some everywhere. Help somebody today. Some are discouraged and weary in heart. Help somebody today. Some on the journey too heavy to start. Help somebody today. The goal of the Christian church, healthy churches, are churches that bear each other's burdens. We help each other in emotional crises. We mourn with those who mourn. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We share burdens. We share joys. Our goal should be to live a life of helpfulness, that we help one 
another. By the way, this is referenced all throughout the scriptures. You see this regularly. As a matter of fact, you find, you could just mark these down, we won't turn there. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, and Colossians 3, 12 through 14, Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, even goes so far to say that sometimes our burdens take the form of each other. Sometimes you want to know what your burden is? Me. You want to know what my burden is sometimes? You. And that's why in Ephesians and Colossians, Paul tells us to bear with one another for the sake of your common unity. We bear our burdens. We have to bear each other. Sometimes Christians, by the way, sometimes the Christian life is putting up with one another. Letting petty things go. We come together in unity, we bear with one another, we forgive one another, we let petty things go, and we help one another. Christian churches are spiritual, Christian churches are healthy when there is a strong communion of helpfulness. One of my favorite references to this, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. It's also found in Acts chapter 2, but we're going to save that for the Lord's Supper if you'll turn to Acts chapter 4, there's some great brief examples of Christian fellowship, which is documenting the birth of the Christian church. Acts chapter 4, look at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Isn't that an amazing testimony of the earliest primitive church? As a matter of fact, in Sunday school this morning, we were listening to R.C. Sproul do a parable from Luke, and the whole parable was about our, as, as human beings, our obsession with hoarding our stuff. And just accumulating as much as we can. But notice, that was not the disposition of the early church. The disposition of the other church was not, I need more, I need more, I need more, I need more. But what can I give, what can I give, what can I give, what can I give? The early church was interested in alleviating the material burdens of these people that joined them. They said, I'd be willing to sell my summer vacation home because there are people in my church in need. That's amazing sacrifice. It's not just lip service. They sold what they had and they gave. I'm not telling everyone in here has to go sell your house and sell your car. But we do need to be re-examining ourselves and rethinking how important is it, how, how on, where in my priority list falls helping my church members. We all have burdens if you turn back to Galatians 6, whether spiritual, whether emotional, whether financial. And we realize that there are some burdens that we can't permanently alleviate. There are some bills that we just don't have the money to help you with. 
There are some emotional heartaches that we can't just push a button and make them go away. This is, this is, we're not pretending here that join a church and all your problems go away. But we do help. We do alleviate. We should be making life easier. We should be making life better for one another. And when we do this, we fulfill the law of Christ. Paul again is juxtaposing the weighty moral law that Jesus came and delivered with the ceremonial obsessions of Moses' law that the Judaizers were obsessed with. They were obsessed with circumcision. Jesus is obsessed with bearing one another's burdens. Fulfill what Christ gave to the apostles by bearing each other's burdens and restoring those who are in need. But as we turn to our third point, we are reminded of that warning. Paul said that we need to restore people when they have, are caught up in transgression. We need to help bear their burdens. But there's a danger in all of this. There's a danger to pride. There's a danger to self-righteousness. There's a danger of comparing ourselves to other people and then thinking we're good because we're not as bad as others. And so the third mark of healthy spiritual-led churches is that the people are overcome with humility. Humility is our third mark. We need to be humble people. Look at what Paul says in verses 3 through 4. If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. So notice Paul says that there's a danger in all this. As I'm helping my neighbor, as I'm reproving my neighbor, as I'm assisting my neighbor, there is this temptation to think more of myself than I ought to. There's this temptation to deceive myself and think I'm just so great when I'm really not that great. And why do you think you're so great? Well, because I'm not the one asking for money. They are. I'm not the one heartbroken and overcome by depression and anxiety. They are. I'm not the one caught up in a sinful transgression and lifestyle. They are. I'm the helper. I'm the giver. And Paul wants us to remember, no, 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 no. Even when you're giving, even when you're helping, even when you are... That doesn't mean you get to walk around in vainglory and pride and think you're better than everyone else in your church. Other people, their lot in life are not the standard by which we will be judged. By the way, this is, by, this is the morality system of the secular world. This is, Paul is directly refuting the morality system of the secular world. I've said it again, but I've said it before, but let me say it again. I used to do a ton of evangelism on a college campus. And I'm not saying college students necessarily represent the entire demographic. But I'll just share my testimony. I preached the gospel to a lot of college kids on that campus. And let me tell you what I heard time and time and time again. When you die, where are you going to go? Heaven. Why? Because I'm a good person. How do you know you're a good person? And what do they do? They compare themselves to the worst people on earth. I mean, I'm not Hitler. Oh, this is why it's so offensive. Why, this is why the cross, the gospel is so offensive. Because people think more highly of themselves than they ought to. When we preach the cross of Christ, what we're ultimately telling people is you're worthless. You're sinful, you're vile, you're disgusting, and you need a rescue. And these people were walking around before that thinking the world of themselves. I'm a great person. And you want to know how I'm a great person? Because my next door neighbor's a drug dealer, and I don't do that. Because the guy down the street from me robbed a bank last week at gunpoint. I've never done that. It turns out my best friend was cheating on his wife. I've been perfectly faithful. Faithful. 
I'm not a mass shooter. I'm not a terrorist. I don't blow up buildings. I'm not racist. I'm a good person. Yeah, I, you know, I tell a lie every now and then, and sometimes I'm a little selfish. And, but I mean, I'm a great guy. Based on what standard? All these other people around me. But they are not the standard. This is why, as we go about, as Paul says, doing the work of Christian ministry, he says that we must examine, verse 4, we test our own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. We must test our own work, the work of ministry, which, let me say as a brief side note, you realize everyone in this room, by that, if you're a Christian, you're a minister. You know that, right? I am what's called a vocational minister, which means I have particular gifts that earn a paycheck, and we're going to get to that in a second, actually. So I'm a vocational minister, but everyone in this room is a minister. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 that God, that Jesus gave pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. This word work right here you will find is used throughout the New Testament to describe specifically New Testament church building work. You are all ministers, and what's your field of ministry? Each other. We are ministering to each other. In the work of ministry that we do to one another, God will test that work. God will hold us accountable for that work, and we won't be able to say, well, I was better than everybody else. God doesn't grade on a curve. We must examine our own work. And let me tell you, by the way, as a brief side note before we move on to our next two points, that I preach to myself when I preach these sermons, and, and I convict myself when I study the Word during the week. This is not just me preaching to you ever. And here's one of the ways that I have been very convicted. You know, I spend a lot of time in these sermons criticizing evangelicalism at large. And I'm going to do that in a minute. And it's not going to stop. I think it needs to happen. For the sake of our children, for the sake of visitors, for the sake of young people, it needs to happen. I'm not going to stop. But this text convicted me and caused a heart check on me because what Paul is saying of individuals, I had to apply not only to myself, but to the church that God has entrusted to my care in part. Because here's one of my temptations. I get so tired of the silliness of the evangelical world. I get so exhausted by seeing the bride of Christ trivialized and insulted all across the country. I am tired of seeing silly child antics masquerading as the Christian church. And that's what the vast majority of popular churches are today. It's silliness, it's shallow, it's childish. But here's the problem. Not having those things doesn't make your church healthy. It's, it's really easy for me to point at all these churches and point out their silliness and say, you know what, we don't have all the silly fog machine that you can barely breathe in. We don't have someone coming out and shooting church t-shirts out of a cannon. We don't have free iPad giveaways. We don't have this rockin' worship band that we don't even know what the lyrics mean, but they're going and they're going crazy. They're singing secular music half the time. You don't have a hip pastor who wears the latest designer jeans. 
We don't have all this silliness. We don't have the show. And it's really easy for me to think, so we must be healthy. But that's not how I'm going to be judged one day. I will not be able to stand before God and say, you know what, at least I wasn't Stephen Furtick. So what? How did you lead your church? He's not going to compare me to Stephen Furtick. He's going to compare me to me. He's going to judge my work. He's going to judge how I led. And that goes for all of us. There are a lot of churches out there that are humble in their exterior. They're small buildings, small congregations, old pastors who aren't hip and cool celebrities, no lights, no shows, no gimmicks, but they can still be filled with some of the most arrogant, hateful, hostile people. And they can still have terrible teaching pouring from that pulpit. And, and the pastors of those churches can still be arrogant and boastful and prideful. Being small and not having a light show does not guarantee health. These are the marks of a healthy church. By the way, if we're being honest, there are probably churches out there that do have rock and worship music and do have light show and are still doing these things pretty well. So all of us need to remember to check ourselves, to examine our own work. We're not better than the people we're helping. God will look at our work. He will not compare us to our neighbor. And this is why he says in verse 5, by the way, that each will have his own load. Each will have to bear his own load. This seems like kind of a contradiction. Because didn't he just say that we should help each other bear each other's burdens? And now he's saying you have to bear your own load? But that's because he's talking about the examination of our work here. He's talking about judgment before Christ. Our earthly burdens, yes, we have to help each other bear those. You do not have to bear that alone. You can have someone help bear that. But the burden you take, the load that you take to Christ, it's just between you and God. It's between you and the Lord. So how do we alleviate this? We need to be humble. We need to examine ourselves and realize, I'm not better than you because I'm helping you. You're not better than me when you're helping me. And we need to be concerned with our church, with our work, not with what everyone else is doing. We need to be humble people. Aspect number four, he tells us though, we're going to find two in verse six. Admittedly, number four, our fourth mark of a spiritual church or of a healthy church is kind of a side note. It's not really Paul's ultimate point, but it's still there in the text and it's important to bring out. Verse six, he says, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So notice for Paul, there's this expectation that biblical teaching is going to be a regular part of the church life. So the fourth mark of a healthy church is biblical teaching. That the word is regular being taught. It's being taught so often that you actually have someone whose job it is to do that. He's a teacher. You actually have teachers in the church. This is a job within the church to regularly teach the word. So we need to remember here that biblical teaching is crucial to the life and health of any church. That there is this expectation of regular teaching of the Word of God. Healthy churches will have biblical teaching. But the bigger point of verse 6, which leads us to our fifth and final point, is this. Paul says, let the one who has taught the Word 
which is kind of awkward in our English. This is a passive. Usually don't write that way. But he writes this way so this to continue the emphasis is on the layperson here. He's, he's still, he's addressing the church members. He's addressing the lay people. Let the ones who are taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now that might sound a bit ambiguous. That might sound a bit uh, general. But I would encourage you, you read any commentary on this verse. They're all going to tell you the same thing. This is about paying your pastors. This, this is about the people who have been commissioned to teach the word regularly. As Jesus says, the laborer deserves his wages. You know, it's, it was funny. It's, it's always awkward. Well, I had to preach a sermon like this once as we were going through the pastoral epistles. There was another verse. This is a regular teaching of Paul, by the way. And he taught this in pastoral epistles, so I had to preach a sermon called Pastors and Paychecks. And I say I had to because it's, it's awkward, right, as a pastor to talk about giving me money, right? That's what this is about. But I was encouraged this morning as we were doing uh, Sunday school. I've never heard R.C. Sproul do this before, but R.C. Sproul started talking about tithing, and he ripped that congregation to shreds this morning. I have never heard someone rebuke a church so harshly for their lack of tithing to the church. He went so far to say that if a Christian is not a regular tither, then I barely consider them a Christian. I, he says, is it possible for a Christian who doesn't regularly tithe to be a Christian? He says, I guess so, but barely. Those are his exact words. We see from Paul over and over again in the New Testament that this modern idea that you will hear from small groups of people that the gospel's supposed to be free. It's, not, it's, it's wrong for pastors to charge people for the gospel. Paul doesn't think like that. Paul thinks the laborer deserves his wages. You know what? You send your kids to public schools and you know that that education is valuable. You know that them being taught is helpful and good to them, but you don't assume that whoever's teaching them just shouldn't get paid for it. Their work doesn't deserve reimbursement because education matters. So does the gospel matter? Yeah. Does biblical teaching matter? Yeah. But does that mean the one who teaches should not be taking a paycheck? No. It is the congregation's responsibility, as he says, to share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, again, part of the way he phrased it like that is because in the first century, sometimes it wasn't necessarily a paycheck that the teachers would receive, right? Sometimes they would take care of them in other ways, like by providing their food or giving them a parsonage, a place to live, or whatever it might be. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a paycheck, but there is an expectation on Paul that if you have this person up front and you're expecting this person to regularly learn, study, pray, and teach the word, that you should reimburse that. You should support that. You should share all good things with the one who teaches. So healthy churches have comfortable pastors. That's what I'm saying, comfortable pastors. Now I use the word comfort because please don't hear me at all saying that this verse and other verses like it are an excuse for the kinds of abuses that we're seeing today. There's nothing in here. Paul does not indicate in any way, shape, or form that your pastors ought to be rich. That your pastors ought to be the richest people in the congregation. This is not what he's saying. He's merely saying it's not okay to force them to not receive benefit from their work. 
This was probably happening in the Galatian churches, which is why he had to say it. And by the way, this goes into the overall concept of bearing each other's burdens. When, when we have pastors and ministers, they already have a burden of the church. They have a burden to teach the word. They have a burden to care and instruct and, and, and be over the life of the church. And so when they have to have another full-time job, all we've done now is double their burdens. Because with a new job, with another vocation, comes a whole new set of burdens, a whole new set of responsibilities, a whole new set of expectations. So rather than alleviating teachers' burdens, we've doubled their burden. So one of the way that pastors, that vocational ministers specifically have their burdens alleviated is that the church takes care of them. And so let me just briefly say that I'm preaching this right now because it's in the text. I'm not preaching this right now because I have a bone to pick. Right? I, I am grateful for this church. For a church of this size, you have taken care of my wife and me wonderfully. So this is, this is not a rebuke. This is not a complaint. This is just in the text, and so I'm preaching it. But we are grateful, and we are happy with our church. But I would remind all of us that our tithe money is not just for me. Our tithe money is for many things. For church maintenance, for helping one another bear each other's burdens. When you have financial issues, sometimes the church comes in to help that. But if we don't have money, we can't help you. It's for helping our neighbors. We have a world of people in need, and it's great when the church can step in and help people. So it's not just for me. There is many, many reasons why we as Christians need to be devoted to financially supporting the work of God through Redeemer Christian Fellowship. It's not just for me, but that's just what's in the text today. So those are our five marks. In other words, why do you go to that church? Wouldn't it be nice to hear someone say, because they just keep me accountable. Because that's a group of people that loves me enough to hold me accountable. Because that's a humble group of people. They are filled with humility. They help me. They help each other. They keep me accountable. They take care of their pastor. And there's biblical teaching coming from the pulpit. Isn't that enough to be satisfied with? But that's never where a lot of people go. Right? It's, it's about... All the stuff they offer. It's about the gadgets. It's about the convenience. It's about, well, you know, they, they all dress like me or they all look like me. So why is it that these things are so often neglected when we think about healthy churches? Well, there's two reasons. Number one, because these things are hard to quantify, right? How do you measure humility? How do you prove humility? And that's just a claim. My church is humble. Prove it. How do you know that? When we want to tell people, whether it's just a friend or maybe it's a, an advisor or an assessor, whatever it is, if, if, we want to, if we want people to really believe our church is special, we need something quantitative. We need something tangible. So that's why typically, if, if a pastor were to go to a conference a lot of times and talk about the health of his church, or to even be asked to preach at a conference, he needs to be able to prove that his leadership is effective. So how does he prove it? With tangibles, numbers. We had over 75 kids do our Awana program this summer. Church must be healthy. We've seen 7% increase in attendance over the last three years steady. That church must be healthy. 
We baptized over 70 people in the last two years. That church must be healthy. You see, because that gives us something qualitative. That gives us something we can point to. It's objective numbers and data. But Paul is interested in things that are hard to quantify. What's a healthy church? Accountability. No numbers for that. What's a healthy church? Humility. There's no numbers for that. You see, it's, it's hard to quantify these things, and so we're attracted to the things that we can put on paper. But having 170 kids enrolled in our children's ministry does not mean we're healthy. It doesn't mean we're unhealthy, but it just doesn't mean much. But those are the things we like to point to. And, and the second reason why I think we tend to overlook some of these qualities is because these marks of a church require one overarching thing that ties all of them together, which is intimacy. Everything in here requires personal intimacy. You can't restore someone in a transgression if you don't even know they go to your church. You know, there have been times in my life where I've met somebody and asked them what church they go to and they say, yours? Oh, how long? Six months. You've been going to my church for six months and I've never even seen you before. How do they restore that person? This idea of sharing all good things with the pastor. You see, Paul doesn't just say hand him a paycheck. This understanding of sharing and community, this presupposes that there is a personal relationship from teacher to the one who is taught. But most people in some of their churches today, their pastor's a celebrity. He's a blue check mark on Twitter. They can't get a hold of him. They can't, they have no relationship with that man. How easy is it to bear one another's burdens when we don't know each other's burdens? We don't even know each other. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to have a big church. I have plans and hopes and prayers for us to grow. I want us to be bigger. I want more people in this church. I want more people in all biblical churches. I want more people to come to Christ. There's nothing wrong with having a big church, but we do have to ask ourselves, is it possible to be too big? And I don't have a number for you. I don't say over 100 is sinful. I don't have a number for you. But I can tell you that if you're struggling to do some of these basic important things, then maybe there's too many people involved. You see, most churches today do not operate under a system of intimacy, of life. It's you come, you receive, and then you leave. So there's no such thing as burden-bearing. This is why one of the number one things people point to for determining a healthy church is volunteerism. It's all, that's what everyone cares about. And you'll hear it preached every week. There will be something in the announcements or something in the sermon about how you need to volunteer. We need this ministry funded. You need to volunteer. We've got this ministry funded. You need to volunteer. And they'll brag about it. We have over 50% of our congregation volunteering. Volunteer, volunteer, volunteer. Again, none of that's bad, but where's the burden bearing? Where's the restoration? Most of these pastors don't preach enough about sin for people to even know when they're in it. Because it's a pep talk. It's a TED talk. It's a pep rally. It's an encouragement session. No one even knows when they're caught in a transgression because the word of God is not being faithfully preached. And those are some of the richest pastors in this country, by the way. The ones who are not faithfully preaching the word of God are receiving the most fruit from it. And you want to know why? Because if we're honest with ourselves, there's a lot of people in the world who don't want this. 
They want to go to church. They want to be encouraged. They want to be told how great they are. They want to be promised that they're going to overcome their problems, but they don't want another Christian who's up in their business. They don't want to pay their pastors. They don't want to be humble. But for Paul, when we are changed by the Holy Spirit of God, we cannot imagine church outside of an intimate, familial relationship. It doesn't mean everyone is best friends with every single person. I understand that once you get up to about 20 people, it's pretty much impossible for every single person to be best friends and to spend equal time with every person. It just physically, you don't have enough time in the day to do that. I'm not saying every single person has to be best friends with every single person they see. But there needs to be a level of, I know that person, they're part of the same body of Christ that I'm a part of, they're hurting, I'm going to help them. I know that person, I love that person, I see that person, I know the lifestyle they're caught in, I'm going to try to restore them. That's a healthy church. With or without the lights, that's a healthy church. I'll close with this quote from the same pastor I quoted at the beginning. We need community because we were created for it. This means without community, we cannot experience life as God intended. As God said, it is not good for anyone to be alone. Isolation is a consequence of the fall and a major reason many Christians flounder in the faith. It is only as we learn to live life together by faith that we can begin to understand the value of the church and experience the Christian life in its fullness.